The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. In this episode of the HD Insights Pod, we were fortunate to catch up with Dr. Victor Sung. Now, Dr. Sung is an HSG researcher at our University of Alabama Birmingham site, and he's been involved with HSG and HDSA, and he's just a really generous, caring person um, working with patients in uh, the HD field. We were fortunate to catch up with him and spend some time with him at the 34th Annual HDSA Convention in June of 2019 held in Boston. So here's that interview. All right, so we're uh, pleased to be joined today with uh, Dr. Victor Sung. He heads the HD clinic at UAB. Uh, He is a member of the Huntington Study Group. And uh, he's, you know, one of our neurologists who's a PI on all our HD studies. So, uh, Dr. Sung, we're, we're very happy to have you join us today for this podcast. Kevin, thanks for having me. Um, we're here at the HDSA annual convention uh, in Boston, so it's an exciting time. This particular meeting we're, is a patient-facing meeting, so uh, a lot of the stuff is directed towards patients and family members. But... Um, I have to say the thing that all the patients and families want to know the most about is what's going on in in the world of HD research. Um, This is kind of an unprecedented time. You know, I took over our HD clinic in 2010, um, but even in that short amount of time since I've been uh, really working in the field of HD, the way I've seen the research grow, I mean, it's really been exponential. Um, you know, back in 2010, 2011, when I was first getting started, um, you know, our, our clinical trials were not as many. They were mostly symptomatic therapies. They were things that, you know, my first HSG study that I participated in was the CREST-E study, which was looking at creatine yep. uh, for the treatment of HD. Um, and for me, you know, we hoped that maybe it would work, but really in the back of our minds did we really think that a nutritional subs- uh, supplement that you could get over the counter was going to be the end-all be-all cure for Huntington's disease. I don't think any of us really thought that. Could it do something? We hoped that. Um, unfortunately that didn't work out but um, you know a lot of us scientifically are attracted to Huntington's disease because of the genetic aspects of it, because of the scientific aspect that it gives us a target to focus on. Um, you know, I talk to a lot of my, um, well, a lot of people, my colleagues even in the field of neurology ask me, well, how, why would you choose Huntington's disease? You know, right. Huntington's disease is so daunting clinically. Um, these patients have multifaceted clinical issues and tackling that. But one of my answers scientifically as a, you know, a scientist, as a researcher is that compared to other diseases that myself as a neurologist um, might be treating, you know, we don't have a clear idea 
of one single cause of Alzheimer's disease or one single cause of Parkinson's disease or one single cause of ALS, um, whereas in Huntington's disease, we have a pretty clear cause. It's that mutated um, HD gene that causes the disease. So it's as simple and as complicated as targeting that. Um, and while we're still excited about symptomatic therapies, I think that's still hugely important in this field. Um, both symptoms that, I mean, it's our, both uh, therapies that we already have and, and therapies that we're going to look at um, in the future. I think I'm, I'm excited about more symptomatic therapies. We need more of those also. Mm-hmm. Um, the exciting thing right now is all the potentially disease-modifying therapies. I think, you know, disease-modifying therapies really exist in a lot of other fields in neurology. Um, you have revolutionized the treatment of diseases like MS, um, but uh, they've been lacking behind in a lot of the, um, particularly the movement disorders. But the prospect that we might have that in Huntington's disease, um, you know, I think we'd all love to think about these drugs as, or the these therapies on the horizon as potentially curative therapies. And yes, we would all love to cure Huntington's disease. Um, but I think a step towards that is if we can modify the course of the disease by targeting the root cause of the disease by targeting the gene sure um so i think those are the studies that we all are the most excited about generate the most buzz um generate the most questions for all of us as clinicians and scientists um is where are all of those things um you know and i think the the way in my mind that i think about break those therapies down or you have your RNA-based therapies and your DNA-based therapies. Um, for the RNA-based therapies, which are the ones that are um, in clinical trials now, um, you have the Phase three ASO study, which is a non-allele-specific ASO study um, that's being run by Roche uh, Genentech, as it's known in the United States. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about their trial here um, at this meeting. And then the WAVE Life Sciences uh, ASO study, which is um, using a different mechanism, with also with an ASO, but um, slightly different mechanism to be allele specific. I think both of those are very interesting. Um, will either of them be curative on their own? No, uh, I don't think so. But uh, could they significantly slow the progression of the disease? That would still be huge. Mm-hmm. You know, when I my perspective on that is, you know, I ask my patients or my patients kind of say this kind of thing. Well, what is the point of that? You know, well, the point would be um, if you are hypothetically, if you could take these therapies and you're pre-symptomatic, um, then maybe you sl- and you were maybe with your repeat number that you were going to start showing symptoms at 50. Now maybe with these these, uh, these modifying therapies like an ASO drug, then maybe with that, then your disease starts at 60 instead of 50. Um, and 10 more years, 10 more productive years in the working environment, 10 more years of wage earning, and yep. 10 more years with your to see your children graduate from high school and from college and to be able to walk them down the aisle, the, the significance of that is huge. Yep. Um, and then all these potentially disease-modifying therapies, you can still use symptomatic therapies on top of it, right? So... Uh, you know, I, I think all of this kinds of work kind of works together. Um, at the HSG meeting last year, Sarah Tabrizi, um, a clinician scientist at UCL in, in London, 
um, she did a lot of the initial work with this uh, Roche at Genentech AS, ASO. Um, she's the lead author on a lot of these publications. Mm-hmm. Um, at the HSG meeting um, last fall, someone asked her, so what do you think? Like with all the stuff, this amazing stuff that we have going on scientifically in the field of HD, like what's your, give us your candid take on all of these things. Um, and I still quote her uh, on this as I thought it, her answer was spectacular, which is, you know, in, um, in her mind, we have the potential of a total body, you know, a total body cure for HD. And I think that's what it's going to take. We'll need all these therapies. We need all these uh, treatments to come down the pipeline and work. Um, and we'll take any and all of it. Um, and she talked about, you know, uh, there's a an ongoing HSG trial of an IV infusion therapy um, that could be disease modifying. So you have an IV infusion that goes into the rest of your body that might slow the progression of the disease um, combined with an intrathecal or a um, spinal tap delivery um, ASO that really gets a lot of penetration into the cortex or the surface of the brain and slows the disease there. And then you have um, a therapy like the Unicure uh, therapy that is directly injected um, into the basal ganglia of the brain um, and you have a deep brain cure that way or, or and be- between slowing the disease in the basal ganglia the cortex of the brain and in the rest of the body with an IV infusion maybe that's what we're looking at as a cocktail as a kind of total body cure for Huntington's disease um, and the prospect of those things on the horizon that's really neat um, yeah and I think that's one of the things that you know I've heard people talk about is it's not necessarily that any one of these clinical trials are going to end up with the cure yeah. because there's always variances in sure. you know from person to person so it's more of do we get do we look for something like uh, you know in cancer treatments where it is a cocktail like you said right yeah i think that's you know if you look at any of our major diseases where we've made major breakthroughs um, you know a big one that i compared to is HIV, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we've come so far in the treatment of HIV that it's essentially, you know, you can essentially eradicate HIV in patients. They need to continue to take their therapies. But like you said, it's a cocktail. It's a multi-drug regimen that keeps the disease under control. Um, and I think that's what it's going to be. Um, you know, are, are each of these Horizon therapies in H- in the field of HD exciting? Yes, we're as clinicians, as scientists, we're all very excited about all of them. Um, but I think it will take a combination of all of them um, to really get get on top of this disease. Um, but you know, any one of them, we'll take all of them. You know, right. <laughs> we'll take we'll right. take this one and that one and the next one. You know, um, so there's still plenty of work to be done. Um, but that there is this work to be done is super exciting. I want to go back to something you uh, let off with at the beginning, the fact that you know you took over the clinic in 2010 and just the progress in the new types of trials or treatments um, coming out is, has been amazing, but that it, in fact in HD it's kind of lagged behind some of the other diseases. You know, what do you, do you think it's, it's because HD is considered rare or there, you know, it's, it's been more of a growing field or, you know, do you, I, I, are we, is it just that we're reaching a point now where we're starting to make a lot of progress, now we're getting more people involved in it? I think there is this kind of 
cumulative momentum kind of effect. I think some of the slowness in getting into it is like you alluded to. It's a rare disease. Um, big pharmaceutical companies with big money um, weren't attra- as attracted to it initially because they want the glamorous, high-profile diseases that will impact more patients so they can make that money back, which I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think some of it, too, legitimately, is that our scientific technology just wasn't there. You know, the, the gene was sequenced in, ni- in the early 90s, um, and I think people legitimately thought back then, like, oh, we're within a f- we know what the gene is now, what are they gonna, within a few years of being able to cure this disease, and then 20, 30 years later, we're still not there yet. So, you know, I think it's just the technology is not there, and over the last five years, finally our science is catching up to being able to do the things that we've wanted to do right. uh, once we discover the gene. Um, and it's a culmination of those things. So the science is getting there, and as the science gets there, I think these companies, have, you know, they've had enough failures that they see, like, wait, if the science is there, even if um, this is a rare disease that won't impact the same number of patients as, uh, you know, some other higher-profile disease, if we can make this work in this disease and make this technology work in this disease, one, there's good PR for a big pharmaceutical company like says, hey, we were involved in the first gene silencing or curative study in Huntington's disease, but then also maybe they can apply the technology and their learnings to other diseases and then take the next steps into higher profile diseases. Um, Certainly for those of us who have a passion for HD patients and families and wanting to bring new therapies to them, uh, we'll take it. However, HD garnered this attention from uh, pharma to, to have these big studies going on now. Uh, however we got there, I think we'll take it. You, it. you mentioned passion, and I heard you speak last year at the HSG annual meeting with, on the Ask the Experts panel yeah. at, at our family day, and I was really moved by not, not only your responses to family's questions, but you know everybody that was on the panel. Uh, can, Tell us, a, tell us a, a little bit, for those that don't know you or your background, what was, you know, how did you end up in, in neurology and getting into HD specifically? What kind of led you down that path? Yeah, I mean, I think I have a, everybody has their own unique story, but I think the way I ended up in HD is very similar to um, how a lot of my colleagues in this field uh, ended up in HD, which is you kind of backed into it. I don't have any particular personal story, kind of backed into it, but once we got into it, the patients and families um, inspired us. And I think there's a unique aspect to the disease, right? So Huntington's disease is a purely genetic disorder um, with usually an adult onset. Um, And so because of that, people often live their lives until the point, you know, mid-adulthood when they start showing symptoms. But up until then, they have a normal life. And then it hits them like a ton of bricks when... um, uh, in the middle of their life, in the middle of their prime wage-earning years when they start to show symptoms um, and takes them out of those wage-earning years, so the crippling effect of that on their whole family. Um, but then also the, the constitution of symptoms that they get with the motor symptoms, the cognitive symptoms, the behavioral symptoms, and it really affects all aspects of their life, and it really can be um, really devastating on the patient and their whole family around them. And then you add in the genetic aspect of that so that someone who's taking care of their loved one with Huntington's disease then may not be able to be their caregiver anymore once they start to become symptomatic themselves. Um, and so it really has this, this profound impact on the whole family. 
But in spite of that, or maybe because of that, I don't know, uh, just the, the resilience of these HD patients and families and seeing the whole family rise up to meet the challenge of the disease is just so inspiring. And we all get this feeling like, okay, we have to do something to help these people. Um, you know, if they can put up this much of a fight and be inspirational to us, we need to um, step up and meet this scientifically. And I think that's kind of how we all get hooked into it. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. Is there, looking back, is there a particular instance that really inspired you more like what, what, what was your most memorable experience dealing with the patient population there? yeah I mean I think we all have these amazing hooks of stories um, the one for me the story that I always tell it was very early on in, um, when I had taken over the clinic it was a patient who um, so my clinic is in Birmingham Alabama um, and this patient lived in uh, New Orleans New Orleans is about a five-hour drive from Birmingham, and I saw that this patient had come to see me from New Orleans, and I thought, that's an awfully long way to come, five hours to come to Birmingham. How did you guys find me here um, in Birmingham? And they said, well, you know, we looked on the website looking for major centers, um, and from at the time there wasn't a major center of excellence in New Orleans, and so they said, well, the next nearest center was were either Houston or Birmingham, um, and they both were five-hour drives from New Orleans. And they said, well, we figured that um, Houston traffic would be worse than Birmingham traffic, so we chose Birmingham. And I said, well, I think you chose wisely. I grew up in Houston. I love Houston, uh, but the traffic is certainly worse in Houston than it is in Birmingham. Um, and, you know, there were two things that struck me about that patient. She was a young patient, um, and she had profound chorea and profound depression. Um, and... I started two therapies for her, one to treat her depression, one to treat her chorea. Um, you know, one pill for each and pretty straightforward. And then I uh, saw her back in follow-up, and when she came back for follow-up, her follow-up appointment fell around Christmas time. It was in December. And she and her family came with this big basket of goodies, you know, uh, Christmas-themed food goodies. and. Uh, UAB is a state institution. We're not allowed to accept gifts. Um, you know, so I kind of took the basket, kind of towed the typical party line. Like, I accept this gift on behalf of the whole clinic. I will share it with everyone here in the clinic. I'm not going to take any of it home, blah, blah, blah. You know, this typical party line kind of thing. And the family said, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you know, uh, 
you do not understand the gravity of this gift that we're giving you. And I said, well, oh, sorry, uh, please enlighten me, you know. And they said, well, one, we're from New Orleans, and we take our food seriously in New Orleans, so you need to take our food more seriously. And I thought, yes, ma'am, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been to New Orleans. I know you take your food seriously. I, I will take the food seriously. And they said, but more than that, before she became symptomatic with HD, she was a chef. And because of the career that she's have been having and the depression that she's been having, she hasn't been in the kitchen um, for the last five, seven years. Right. Um, but because of these treatments that you gave her, um, she's doing so much better that she participated in making every single thing in this basket. Oh, wow. So on behalf of our whole family, thank you for giving us our sister back. Thank you for giving us our daughter back. Thank you for giving her her sense of self back. Um, and I was crying, and they were crying. Uh, we all had a big cry about it, but it was that, you know. And, and ultimately, you know, many years down the, the road, I mean, this, this patient has succumbed to her Huntington's disease, and she's no longer with us. But that even for that amount of time, um, that with the limited options that we had available, we're still able to make clearly such a big impact on that patient and that patient's whole family, that was the hook. Yeah. It's like, okay, that. Even if we can't do that with everybody, if we can do that every once in a while, um, that's enough, and we need to fight for these kinds of, yeah. for these patients. That's an amazing story, and and it go, it goes right along with what you said. I mean, even though you know she's no longer with us, even that treatment gave her that much more time to right. be more productive or right. get involved with something that she couldn't uh, have gotten into up to that point so yeah I mean that's amazing um, kind of keeping it in the theme with the you know working with families and, and the motivation that you know I this past year you, you uh, became part of the board of directors uh, at HDSA and so um, you know what's what's your experience been like you know working in that in that capacity yeah I think uh, like like a lot of things this is it's definitely a labor of love you know um, all of the volunteers on the board of trustees for HDSA um, volunteer their time and give of it freely. About half the board has HD in their family and the other half uh, have a story like mine where they interacted with HD patients and families and just fell in love um, and felt like they needed to do something um, to help. And I think that's HDSA's mantra, right, uh, is help for today, hope for tomorrow. Um, and I think that's very true. I think that's kind of how we all live and breathe it. Um, it's been hugely rewarding to be a part of the board, um, to shepherd their mission. I think HD, it's, it's great. You know, HDSA's mission is really providing help and hope for patients and families. It's a really patient-facing mm -hmm. organization. Um, and they really do have a nice collaborative working relationship with the other HD organizations like the Huntington Study Group, which is much more research-focused, mm -hmm. um, which I think is really important. And, you know, HDSA doesn't take as big of a role um, in shepherding the clinical trials because they're the patient-facing organization. Um, so, but I think there's a place for everybody at the table um, to really work to um, 
help eradicate this disease. You Absolutely. Know? Um, I think I've heard HSG people say the same thing. I've heard HDSA people say the same thing as we'd love to put ourselves out of business, right? We'd love to, yes. uh, through the work that we do, there's so much out there that, you know, we've eradicated the disease or er- eradicated the need for Huntington Study Group to exist or HDSA to exist. Um, and that's kind of what we're all passionately working towards. Absolutely. One of the things people may also not know about you, and in terms of your role at uh, Huntington Study Group, you also have um, helped out with our CME for HD program. So you're, you know, you've provided some um, training, lecture-based training, yeah. um, in the the course of the disease. And I think the one thing that's, you know, the the takeaway from that course is it's a holistic look at yeah. how you handle care and, and treatment of the disease. It's not just prescribing a drug but like you said there's there's symptoms that we can treat there's um, uh, the the psychology the psychiatric treatment there's uh, you know cognitive issues what in your experience or you know what what do you foresee changing that overall dynamic um, over the course of time so we have these new treatments coming out but yes the key is not to lose sight of the fact that you know you need social workers you need You need to think about financial planning. You need to think about, you know, eventually care in the home, whether it's family members or professionals. So, you know, what are some of the things that maybe you're doing at UAB that kind of look holistically? Yeah, I think that's really important. And it's one of our goals with CME for HD, the the program that HSG's put on, is really showing that, okay, right now, you know, a lot of our big uh, disease-modifying therapies, they're all in clinical trials, meaning that none of them are clinically available to treat our patients. Um, and it may be a number of years before we have any of those. But it, me- it doesn't mean that right now there's not things that we can do. Um, and just because we don't have a curative prescription that we can write on a prescription pad and order for our patients doesn't mean there's not things that we can do um, that have a significant impact on the whole patients and families' lives, you know, and it's more than just the medicines. You know, we talked about in my story about um, some medicines that I gave that did have a, a big impact on that patient um, and family, uh, but there is definitely more than that, like you alluded to. So just getting the awareness out there, I think, is hugely important um, for there are things that can be done. Um, kind of dispelling this myth that just because we can't cure it doesn't mean that there's nothing that we can do about it. Um, so I think that's part of the goal of CME for HD. But forward-looking, uh, definitely, I think that's something that is huge, um, that we are all talking about. Um, we're, as center directors, we're having a big meeting tomorrow um, specifically to talk about this. What if one or more of these disease-modifying therapies gets approved in the next couple years. If we don't have our infrastructure ready, our care model ready um, on how we're going to provide this care, provide patients access to these new therapies, then we won't be ready and we will fail the the patient and the community. Right, because Um, it's one thing to be able to deliver it in a trial setting, a controlled trial setting, but then when you're talking the entire population. Yeah, you know, and uh, like... uh, a number of these trials, while the drugs are, while the therapies are exciting, they are invasive, right? So the two ASO trials that are ongoing now, they're intrathecally delivered. So if the the therapies work out um, scientifically and come to market, then we're talking about a therapy that has to be delivered via lumbar puncture. Um, you know, the vast majority of the neurologists in the United States 
haven't done a lumbar puncture themselves in a long time. Right. Um, you know, if you've been in private practice for 30 years, it may be, it may have been 30 years since you've done a lumbar puncture. Um, are they all going to feel comfortable all of a sudden bringing an HD patient in who's symptomatic and has chorea and doing their first lumbar puncture in 30 years on an HD patient with chorea to deliver them this therapy? I would venture to say that they're not going to want to do that. Um, so, but patients will be clamoring for it. So how are we going to operationalize that? I think it's going to be up to us as the investigators, as the center of excellence directors, to come up with a care plan that operationalizes that. At the same time, you know, all of us at, as investigators, um, HSG sites, uh, Center of Excellence directors, we're, the, ma- the majority of us are at tertiary referral centers where we're already being inundated by patients and we have an access issue already. And what are we going to do when all of a sudden all of these patients have to come to us to receive these um, invasive therapies, how are we going to accommodate that? You know, the ASO therapies are going to require multiple treatments a year. Mm-hmm. Um, how are we going to accommodate that? How are we going to meet those the demands? Um, those are, it's a complex thing, and, um, but I think it's a, it, to me, I look at it as a double-edged sword. It's going to be a hard question to answer, and we're going to have to figure out something that's going to work for everybody, which is going to be really difficult. But at the same time, if we're having to have that discussion, it's a good thing, yes. right? I mean, at least we have therapies that have a lot of promise that we're talking about how we're going to deliver these promising therapies to our patients, as opposed to the opposite, which is, well, we don't have this difficult problem to solve because we don't have good therapies to deliver to our patients. So... You know, it's this double-edged sword. Yeah, it's a it's a good problem to have. But yeah. we, the more prepared we are, the the better it'll be for the, the entire population. For yeah. Sure. Um, before we finish up, there's really just one one last question I wanted to ask you, and that's you know, in your growth in this field or getting into this field, who has been your greatest mentor? Who's the the role model that you've that you look to or still do maybe that uh, that's that's really kind of inspired you to grow yeah i mean the, our community is really tight-knit and i think that's been one thing that's been attractive all of us who do this are passionate about it and we see that same passion in all the other investigators the other thing is it's very collegial i mean it's that's been my experience and movement disorders in, uh, in, in the broader sense, but definitely within the HD community. Everyone is looking for the next person coming up and looking proactively to reach a handout and help them to come up to their next stage. The person, the single person in the field, in our field of HD, who has been that person for me is Sam Frank. Um, you know, I tell this story all the time about I never would have known... Um, what, how clinical trials and being involved in clinical trials would have helped my career. Um, I knew pretty early that I wasn't going to have a lab, a basic science lab, and chase NIH grants that way, but how was I going to be an academician um, and do research, which I still was interested in, um, and the thing that was most apparent to me was in clinical trials. And one of the early trials that I was involved in was the HSG trial uh, first HD, which was um, led to uh, the commercial approval of uh, dutetrabenazine. And Sam, as you know, um, was one of the PIs on 
the first HD study, the, the, the global PI for the study. And I remember at the first investigator meeting um, for first HD, wide-eyed, I didn't know anybody, sitting down, um, and Sam was looking around the room and saw a new face that he didn't know and proactively came over and sat down next to me, um, and we just hit it off. I mean, I could tell he had the same energy, the same passion for HD patients, um, and we hit it off really well. And then, um, you know, this is my first year on faculty, and then a few months later I got an email inviting me to chair a session at the American Academy of Neurology, um, and I thought, how in the world did I get invited for that? Because I'm brand new. I don't know anybody. I haven't. Do- I literally haven't done anything in my career. Um, and it turns out Sam was the chair of the scientific committee for oh, wow. movement disorders for the American Academy of Neurology. And so he chose that. I mean, that that is him directly mentoring and directly helping me. Um, you know, things like being a chair for a committee for our big national meeting right. uh, those look really good on your resume um, on your CV and that's how you move up um, and it's those direct things like proactively helping me um, up to the next step and uh, you know I'm forever thankful for those things and you know so I, now I'm not the new guy anymore and I'm proactively trying to reach um, to the next generation um, but that's how we do it. I mean, that's how we get more investigators to be involved in clinical trials. We have to have this proactive, um, you know, mentoring uh, thing. And we definitely have that in, in this community. It's it's all facilitated, in my mind, by HSG. But there's really this attitude um, that kind of pervades our whole community. And it's been, it's been fantastic to be a part of. That's outstanding. Well, Dr. Sung, we appreciate your time um, stepping away from the HDSA conference to, to speak with us today. Thank you so much for your passion and dedication to the community, and we look forward to continuing to, to hear from you in the future. All right. Thanks for having me, Kevin. All right. Thank you. That concludes our interview with Dr. Victor Sung. It was great catching up with him at the HDSA convention in Boston, and he has some really great stories to share about his experience with patients as well as research, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode and this interview that we were able to bring you. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.